Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for tuning in here. Uh, excited for this conversation with State Senator Michael Gennaris, a Democrat from Queens and the Deputy Leader of the State Senate. Senator Gennaris, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. So we are speaking on Friday, August 20th. I should make that clear to everybody because things are changing very quickly these days in New York politics and government, I guess, as always, but maybe more so these days, uh, even though some may have hoped for a quieter August. We're, we're definitely not getting that. Um, so as we speak here on the 20th, we're just a couple of days away from the governor's planned official resignation and from the swearing in of Kathy Hochul as the next governor of New York. What's your overall reaction, reflection at this point now that we're a couple of weeks from um, the report from State Attorney General Letitia James that then led to the governor's announcement of his resignation? And now we're just a few days from Governor Cuomo uh, stepping down, as expected. Um, how are you thinking about his resignation and, um, and his downfall here? Well, I think his resignation was uh, the proper step. It should have happened months ago. Many of us going back to early March had called for him to step down based on the um, stories of the uh, the women that came forward. Um, it's happening now, I guess, uh, better late than never, but uh, most focused on getting the state back on track. There's a lot of really important substantive things that have been put on hold because the governor has been distracted by his scandals. Uh, most notably, we've got about $2 billion in rent relief money that hasn't gone out the door. We're last in the nation and getting that money out. Um, we have uh, the New York Hero Act, which um, myself and Assemblywoman uh, Curtis Reyes put together uh, that requires COVID protocols to be in place uh, in the workplace. Um, and yet we cannot get the Department of Health to certify that um, we are in the midst of a dangerous pandemic, if you could believe that. That's required for the regulations to kick in. And uh, somehow uh, the, the Department of Health has not seen fit to certify that for us right now. And that's just a couple of examples. There's a lot of the business of the state that's been held up because of um, because of the governor uh, and the executive branch being frozen. Mm -hmm. As you um, and, and let's come back to some of that, certainly in, in a moment. Um, What's Governor Andrew Cuomo's legacy in your mind as he um, as he departs here after a decade as governor, before that attorney general, before that, obviously, uh, son, advisor, campaign manager for former Governor Mario Cuomo? Um, this scandal, multiple scandals that have engulfed the governor here, but obviously, first and foremost, the sexual misconduct allegations that led to the corroboration, in the attorney general report, and his decision to resign uh, thereafter. That's obviously right there now at the top of how he'll be remembered. But um, what, how do you characterize what his legacy as, as governor especially will be? Well, it, it, it's hard to separate anything that happened under his uh, watch from the style and the um, autocratic um, approach he took to government. I, I earlier had likened it to uh, a tyranny, and I really believe it was, um, because anything he did was influenced by that. So you, you look at even the harassment allegations, that comes from someone who feels so entitled and is so arrogant about their power and their position that he believed he could do anything he wanted to and get away with it. Even to this day, even though he's announced a resignation, he's still defending his behavior and attacking the, the courageous women who came forward. Um, 
But then even if, if you look at how he's governed, um, those of us in the Senate uh, know this all too well. He spent much of the last decade trying to deny his own party a majority in the state Senate. Um, and uh, it was something that he did in a very manipulative fashion so that it was hard for people to even believe it. But those of us who experienced it know it. And I think you find multiple members of the state Senate right now who could tell their stories of how he encouraged them not to run. He withheld support from them. Uh, and certainly those of us who were running the uh, campaigns for the Senate can tell you that firsthand, um, which uh, which I certainly can. Um, and even his accomplishments you know, that, that he's hanging his hat on on still, right? He's been talking about same-sex marriage, uh, safe act, and the minimum wage for the last decade. And those accomplishments, uh, while significant, were all about a decade ago now, um, because uh, that was done at a time when he was um, uh, helping or facilitating Republican control of the Senate so that he can make these things happen, and then he can get the credit for them for overcoming the Republican Senate that he actually um, helped keep in place. Mind you, all of those things would have happened and would have happened a lot faster with a Democratic Senate. So if he just cha channeled his energies into bringing that uh, outcome to the Senate instead of opposing it, uh, all those things would have happened. And what would have happened then is he would have had to share the credit with the legislature, which he never wants to do. And I find it interesting that he does talk about decade, a decade old accomplishments. Uh, because we have done so much more in the last three years, but those are largely seen as legislative accomplishments. Once we took the Senate and we rolled into 2019, uh, we enacted gender, we banned conversion therapy, we codified Roe versus Wade, uh, we increased taxes on the wealthy, we have the strongest tenant laws the state has ever had, we've enacted real reforms to the criminal laws uh, in this state. He never talks about that because these are not things that um, that he can somehow you know raise his flag and claim that he miraculously convinced Republicans to adopt. So uh, it's hard to peel apart anything that he's done substantively from his style because everything is affected by it. Um, and so I think his legacy, when I look back on it, is going to be of, uh, of an autocracy that wasn't necessary, was a hindrance to the state uh, and um, will be much better off uh, once it's over. What does this all come back to, do you think, um, you know, this is uh, someone who clearly had a real hunger for power. He also had something, has had something of a governing philosophy and, and seemed to, you know, before some movement toward the left in recent years, you know, sort of really have a, a kind of moderate governing philosophy, um, you know, which even some of it persisted even in the last few years in terms of um, how he talked about uh, you know, raising taxes and, and some other things. Um, are those things, were those things in conflict? Were they, uh, you know, just part of, of the way of doing business? Was all of this, you know, part of this sort of um, psychodrama related to his father and trying to outdo him and learn from his mistakes? Um, what was at the root of a lot of this from what you could tell? That's uh, that's a subject for a psychology class uh, somewhere to figure out. I mean, there's a lot to unravel there. Um, but what's interesting to me is I don't I don't think he ever fully was comfortable and came to figure out how to work with an all Democrat legislature, which is a strange thing to say for a Democratic governor, uh, unless you know this man and how he um, treated us the last decade. Um, because he, he, even in his resignation speech, he said, oh, we're the progressive capital of the nation. Well, he doesn't say that. He tried to keep that from happening for most of the last decade. And uh, even the accomplishments that we did get, as you pointed out, 
he was trying to hold us back. He was against raising taxes. And then we imposed on, on him in the budget to, to agree. Even on the day that we passed the, um, uh, the law to uh, the green light law for driver's licenses for immigrants, he was talking about how he believed it might be unconstitutional to try and slow us down and keep us from passing it. So to the end, he was never part of the, the, the team, so to speak. And, and he never was comfortable in the last three years um, with the leadership of, of the two houses being members of his own party. And uh, I, I do think that is a story that needs to be understood and told. Mm-hmm. What do you make of um, how this impeachment investigation and decisions by the assembly speaker have gone? Is that something that assembly speaker hasty had conversations with you, with Majority Leader Stuart Cousins, uh, with your staff. Um, is that something they discussed with you as he was deciding to suspend the impeachment and then sort of making this adjustment to produce a report that we don't know when we'll see, but he says now they'll produce. What do you make of how the Assembly's been been handling that? Well, to answer your question, uh, we were never part of conversations or briefings about that, nor, you know, it's, it's their prerogative, nor, nor would I say that we'd be expected to. In fact, if there were to be impeachment articles voted out, we would have had to sit as the uh, court of impeachment. So um, we were just sit, standing by at the ready um, mm-hmm. to, to for, uh, fulfill our obligations in that regard. So uh, there was no consultation in that respect. Um, I'm glad they're going to put out a report. I think the idea that they would just shut down operations and send off their findings and not um, reveal to the public any of it would have been a mistake. Uh, very reminiscent of the way the Moreland Commission shut down and it was never heard from again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am glad they uh, have decided to release the findings, um, whether or not they should have chosen to impeach. Like I say, we would have been ready to, to fulfill our end of the bargain and have that have the trial that would have been necessary. But uh, it seems like at this point, they've decided not to go in that direction. And um, even with the idea of producing a report, I mean, this is like a this is going to be a partial report, right, because they've suspended the, the investigation. Is that um, concerning to you at all? Yeah, look, we, we, we all want accountability here. And um, part of this process was identifying what happened, not just with the many claims of harassment, uh, which the attorney general's report um, went into in depth, but the assembly was also looking at the nursing home question and the uh, Tappan Zee Bridge, the Maricoma Bridge question uh, and the book deal. There was a lot of elements they were looking at. And I do think accountability is still needed for any um, malfeasance that took place um, uh, in, in that regard. Now, there are five district attorneys still looking at this. The U.S. attorney, the Eastern District is still looking at the nursing home question. Um, so there will still be those opportunities. But uh, um, uh, it seemed like this was one of those chances to really um, have accountability and whether they are continuing to look at that stuff uh, or just suspending and releasing what they have. I, I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. You talked about the legacy of Governor Cuomo from your point of view being of autocracy. Uh, obviously, another part of the report that came out of the attorney general's office was about the workplace culture in the Cuomo administration um, describing it, whether by their findings or by, you know, witness testimony as uh, quite a few troubling terms such as toxic, abusive, secretive, uh, you know, and, and the list goes on. Uh, this governor has been called these things uh, over, over the decade, but 
often just here and there and and most often, you know, from the opposing party, although at times during some of the primary challenges against him in, in 2014 and 2018. Um, but, you know, the way that he's operated in something of an autocratic fashion has been no secret. Um, and the, the culture of his administration has been no secret, at least generally speaking. As you said, there's plenty of people with, with stories, um, some previously told and some just coming out now. Why do you think this type of behavior was not um, challenged more over the last 10 years. Why do you think, um, you know, it really took this group of women coming forward with harassment and and misconduct claims to, to really um, sort of expose more of this? I think if I had to venture, I guess I'd answer there. It's because the behavior finally was so beyond the pale that it penetrated um, public consciousness. Uh, look, there were many of us that stood up to him through the years. Myself, Mayor de Blasio certainly could, knows, knows what that's like, the Working Families Party, um, to name just a few. And when you're dealing with a bully um, the way he is, what tends to happen is the bully is very successful until it all falls apart and topples over. And I think that's exactly what happened here. Um, he finally had done something and, and these, um, these courageous women came forward um, in a way that really grabbed a hold of public attention. And then the floodgates opened, right? And everyone started saying, well, I knew this all along. Well, some of us mm-hmm. <laughs> have certainly been yelling about this for 10 years mm-hmm. um, with uh, moderate success. I mean, one of the things I'm proud of is that we did achieve uh, a Senate majority with uh, the governor opposing us uh, year after year um, and are sitting here now with a supermajority and, and able to really move this state in the right direction. But mm-hmm. um but this is stuff that had been going on forever. And I think, you know, when you're talking about something, for example, as in the weeds, as control of the Senate, and he does things in such a manipulative way that, you know, you can't really put your finger on it and say, well, he did this, that, and the other thing, and he can deny it. And which is, by the way, he's denying the harassment claims too. Um, these things he got away with for a long time because it was very hard to prove and, and so on. But now that um, you've got multiple women stepping forward with the courage to um, tell their stories, I think it finally got through to people that this is not a good guy that we're dealing with. You mentioned conflict you've had with him. Absolutely. You know, you've been one of those Democrats who, you know, there's been some open pushback from, you mentioned Mayor de Blasio, who infamously sort of went off on on Cuomo in 2015. Um, and, and there's been others, obviously. But then when, you know, we've seen him challenged politically, most Democratic elected officials have either said nothing or endorsed him. Uh, there hasn't been sort of a, a political coalition who came to either try to, you know, put him in his place, so to speak, or um, or outright remove him from office through an election, um, you know, through a primary challenge. Why do you think that was? Why why didn't forces, including yourself, sort of come together more? And I'm not necessarily saying, you know, behind a Cynthia Nixon, for example, but maybe to run someone else. Um, why why wasn't there more of a political coalition to to try to counteract the way that he he ran things? Well, I think people have tried. You mentioned Cynthia Nixon stepped forward and and with the support of a number of progressive groups um, uh, gave a good run uh, at the governor. But 
politics being what it is, he was, Andrew Cuomo is a very good political tactician and a very good manipulator. Um, and over the years had positioned himself well to make the make political success difficult. Uh, and even for those of us like myself who didn't support him, um, you know, you say, why not find a better candidate? Well, you know, I can't magically produce one. People have to have a desire to, to take on that challenge. And it's a big challenge politically. And, you know, he's got it always has a huge war chest and comes guns blazing. And uh, some people just didn't want to go through all that. And I don't particularly blame them. But the important thing is here we are. Um, and thanks to these uh, these women that came forward, we now have gotten to a place where we could move the state in a better direction. Mm-hmm. Any um any personal interaction with him or his his staff that is the most um you know sticks out the most in your mind as you're watching him go at this point well there's so many i mean one of the virtues of being a fairly open uh, antagonist of his over the years is there comes a point where they just stop talking to you because they realize they're not getting anywhere um and so i went through months at a time of no contact which turned out to be uh, incredibly productive because I could focus on my work and not be distracted by their nonsense. I mean, there was a time, you know, among the many things that he did to, to try and sabotage uh, the Senate efforts, he he once offered me a job to get me out of the Senate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's exactly the kind of Machiavellian manipulator this guy was. Um, you know, obviously we don't get along and he was inviting me in to be, you know, I guess I would be even more subject to that toxic workplace had I accepted. So thankfully I didn't uh, because I was focused on getting the Senate um, in democratic hands. Um, but it's your that friend, kind of friends thing. Cl- close and your enemies closer, right? Well, yeah, I guess so. And, you know, gosh, being under his thumb would, you know, even, you know it's, it's that kind of thing, right? He's like, I'll offer you this great job. Come on in. And, you know, you got to think to the next level to realize being under his thumb would be the death knell for your career. And so fortunately I, uh, I, I saw it that way and uh, stayed where I am and helped Andrea Stewart cousins become uh, the first woman leader uh, in the state's history. So, um, you know, yeah, go ahead. Man. No, go ahead. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the course of the last 10 years has been, so interesting you know those of us that follow uh, state government um this is a historic time you know first of all just the complete turnover of the state senate and, and by solid numbers now is something that overturns about 100 years of uh of history of this state um, and having a governor that um facilitated uh the republican control finally be toppled is really going to launch us into a period of amazing uh, progressive possibilities um in the next few years mm-hmm. and um i want to ask you about uh how the governor and his team have interacted with uh majority leader Stuart cousins who obviously work closely with as the deputy leader of the state senate um but but first will you say what the um what the position was that the governor offered you Oh, sure. It was um, head of the uh, Department of Financial Services. Uh, uh, so what, you know, there's been reports that have come out recently that the governor said uh, racist things about uh, Stuart Cousins, Andrew Stuart Cousins, when she was on the verge of becoming the first black majority leader and first, wo- I'm sorry, first woman and first uh, black woman to be majority leader of the state Senate. There have been other incidents where he's disrespected her. Um is there anything more to say on that relationship and, and how, um, you know, your team has, uh, has responded to it? Well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm not 
at liberty to talk about things that Andrew Stewart Cousins has experienced. I'll leave that to her to share or not share as she's fit. But the ones that have been reported, I mean, I was there for the incident that the New York Times reported on a while back where he suggested she doesn't understand the suburbs as well as Jeff Klein did, even though Jeff Klein represented the Bronx and she represented Westchester. Um, and so I, in terms of how we reacted as a conference and particularly how she reacted to it, uh, she did what she always did. And we followed her lead, which is hold your head up high, act with dignity, don't stoop to his level. And that has proven to be an incredibly effective strategy because here we sit with the largest uh, majority the state Senate has seen in its history with 43 members. Uh, and we're still standing and he's on his way out the door. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, this question of accountability related to the uh, assembly uh, pausing, shutting down its uh, impeachment investigation. Um, if those other investigations don't lead to, you know, charges, um, what what kind of accountability will there be here for uh, Governor Cuomo, um, it seems like with impeachment shutting down, if he's not, um, you know, facing jail time or something like that, there's there remains the possibility that he turns around and r- runs again for governor next year. Yeah, I mean, like personally, I would have favored uh, an impeachment that would have led to us um, holding trial and, and um, passing judgment on on his behavior. That's not up to the Senate. Um, our our decision would have been to convict uh, or acquit based on what we were, may have been presented with. Um, I should also say that aside from the criminal investigations, there are likely to be a number of civil suits brought mm-hmm. too. So there there remain a, a number of avenues to um, both bring the truth to light and um, uh, and exact some kind of um, accountability um, as part of the misconduct that's taken place. Um, but if there is no impeachment, then that one of those avenues is closed, unfortunately. I'm talking here with uh, State Senator Michael Gennaris, a Democrat from Queens, the deputy leader of the state Senate. We are talking on Friday, August 20th. So just a couple of days before the governor uh, is expected to officially leave office. And we are going to see Kathy Hochul sworn in as the 57th governor of New York. What are your what's your relationship like with uh, Lieutenant Governor Hochul, soon to be Governor Hochul? And um, what are your hopes about her tenure as governor, however long it may last? Uh, Many of us have had uh, the same relatively positive experience with Kathy Hochul, um, which is to say she's very much uh, seems to be in favor of outreach and collaboration and consultation. And that was all in the context of her as lieutenant governor and an administration that uh, shut her out of a lot of the um, important decisions they were involved in. So um, what she will do when she ascends to this important office remains to be seen. But just what I can tell you about her personality is she seems like the type of person that will correct a lot of the problems with the style um, that we saw out of the executive uh, over the last decade. Um, Substantively, we don't really know um, where she's going to land. We have her record in Congress going back many, many years to look at, but I think a lot of things have changed since then. Um, and uh, where she lands on some of these issues um, are things we're going to discover uh, as we go. Mm-hmm. Have you talked with her at all about her lieutenant governor appointment? No, I've not. Mm-hmm. And do you, there's, there seems to be reporting that she's eyeing members of your conference, your Democratic State Senate conference. Uh, what's your sense of where that, where that process is at? 
We have an incredibly talented group of people serving in the majority. So I don't, I don't blame her for trying to um, snatch uh, one of them up for, for this important job, but uh, I don't have any specific knowledge of, of what direction she's going. Mm-hmm. And when you say you're going to soon see sort of where she falls on some issues, are there things most pressing for you, for the conference, you know, that you can, that you can name in terms of the pivotal, uh, you know, potential points where there might be some divergence between, you know, sort of the progressivism of the of the legislature and where a Governor Hochul may come in? Are there are there certain issues? Are there certain specific pieces of legislation that are on your mind? Any of any of those types of things at this point? Yeah, well, speaking for myself, I I would really like to see us take some uh, action on climate. We -hmm. passed the LCPA in 2019. That was uh, an important nation-leading piece of legislation, but we have we have not taken the steps necessary to implement it properly since then. Um, and so, hopefully, next year's session we'll see some important work on climate. Um, I, I'm very anxious to do work on uh, healthcare um, and providing access to uh, to healthcare uh, for New Yorkers um, in, a, in a way that improves their uh, their insurance. Um, options. Um, and uh, for me, mass transit uh, remains an important uh, thing that has been neglected. The governor played games with the MTA for so long that there's a lot of work to do to get um, that organization in shape and working uh, for people. I've got an important uh, piece of antitrust legislation that moved and passed the Senate this year um, that would hold some of these big tech companies more accountable and create greater competition in the marketplace. So there's no shortage of, of things we're still working on. The um, climate legislation you, you mentioned first, um, or, or the issue at least, um, that's something that doesn't seem like the legislature, you know, has advanced the sort of follow-up uh, to the CLCPA um, that was being debated. Is that something you think the legislature is ready to move on, is, is creating that implementation and funding uh, structures? Yeah, I, and I agree with you, by the way. We haven't done what we should have uh, done over the last couple of years, and, mm-hmm. and um, I'm anxious to get there. And there's a number of uh, ways to address this problem, and we need to move on them. Um, it would, of course, be helpful to have a governor that is um, pulling in the same direction as some of us on these issues, and um, hopefully the incoming governor will do that. You mentioned your antitrust uh, legislation that passed the Senate but not the Assembly. Uh, it seems like I'm not sure if that's quite at play, play with this with that legislation. You can obviously fill us in, but um, it seems like on a number of issues, uh, reform of the state ethics commission, um, you know, a few a few different things that your Senate majority has kind of surpassed the assembly majority in terms of um, pushing ahead on progressive priorities. Is that a fair characterization? And and. If so, what needs to happen to sort of get the chambers uh, more fully aligned from your perspective? I'll leave that analysis for others. I just know that we have had an incredibly productive three sessions. They're the most production that this state has seen uh, in its history legislatively. And we couldn't do that without the assembly as partners on everything we passed. So mm-hmm. um, hopefully that partnership will continue and grow more robust and we'll get uh, even more things done that are necessary. Is, um, is the idea of ethics reform, are there things related to um, the Cuomo scandals that we've seen, several of them, um, and other ethics issues? Uh, is that at the top of the agenda at all for you? 
It is. And uh, this is something that Senator Biagi has done uh, great work on. Um, she's had a number of hearings and has um, proposed a series of changes to JCOPE, which Lord knows is in need of, uh, of reform. Um, so, yes, that's uh, the, the good government um, ethics reforms is something that uh, is always something that we try and advance in the Senate and will continue to. And do you have a sense of why the assembly is not on the same page? Uh, you'd have to ask them. Sometimes it's just you know, working out the details. Sometimes it's things that are more significant than that. But I'm not um, in a position to speak for them. What do you think about term limits at the state level, whether it's for executive positions or legislative positions? I'm OK with it. I have no problem with uh, imposing term limits. I do think there comes a point in time um, when uh, People get uh, stale or out of touch with um, the people they represent. I think that was part of Andrew Cuomo's problem in the last couple of years is his circle got tighter and tighter. And um, the um, uh, exposure to uh, whether it's the public or just even other leaders um, in government uh, becomes more restrictive. So I, I would have no problem at all with uh, with term limits being imposed in New York. I think it's it's a longer road to hold with uh, some of my colleagues in the legislature, but mm-hmm. um, it's a conversation worth having. Is it something you've thought about in terms of what you think would be appropriate? You know, are you two terms for a, uh, you know, a governor, uh, three, four or five terms for a legislator? Those are two-year terms, you know, as opposed to four-year. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of proposals over mm-hmm. time on this. Some of them um, you know, want to extend legislative terms, but then impose term limits. Some of them just want to impose term limits. Um, so I, I just think you get into a real problem when someone's around longer than 12, 15 years. At some point, you're just not really, um, uh, you know, we're dealing with New York, especially where there's so much change in our neighborhoods that you get to a point where someone's just not um, yeah, as in touch with the changing community as, as they should be. Now that's not to say someone can't be there 30 or 40 years and be the best representative there is, right? We're painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but mm-hmm. um, I do think there is value in saying, you know, let's, let's force some turnover every so often. Well, we've seen some primaries take care of that in recent years, especially uh, including in your, in your chamber. So uh, not, not necessarily something I'm advocating for in my questions <laughs> to you, but, um, but it's just, you know, it is something that comes up, uh, you know, in discussion, especially as people were talking about the governor, as you mentioned, and, you know, just some of the other. What's, what's interesting, Ben, is you, you do point that out. And a lot of people who oppose term limits will say, well, the elections are term limits. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, the more primaries are successful, the stronger that argument becomes, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are seeing that kind of turnover. I think more than half the Senate is in their first two terms, which is something that would have been unfathomable a few years ago. Um, so the elections are working. More people are engaged in the democratic process. We have made a number of electoral reforms that have made that possible, uh, making it easier for people to vote, early voting, uh, making, making vote by mail easier. Uh, automatic registration is now the law in New York. So opening up the democratic process also helps to generate that, uh, that kind of dynamic um, democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned also in your sort of list of topics, uh, expanding health insurance, improving health insurance options, but you didn't say uh, universal health care, single payer health care. Has that has that sort of has that ship sailed in terms of the legislative discussion around that? I, f- I found that one of the most interesting sort of political policy stories of the Democrats taking full control of both houses of the legislature is that when 
you guys were in the minority in the Senate and the assembly had the majority, you know, the assembly was, was sort of performatively passing, uh, the New York health act. And, and, you know, there was a lot of discussion. If we, if the Democrats take control of the state Senate, we'll be able to do that. And now we've seen, you know, a few years of, of that democratic control and, and no movement on that legislation. That's, that's been interesting. Uh, to answer your question, no, the ship has not sailed. Um, it is still a priority for uh, many of us, including myself. Um, the leader, Leader Stewart Cousins, has started to kind of dig into this in greater detail. What, what we saw as the issue started getting discussed is there's a lot of pieces to this that uh, maybe initially were not uh, expected. For example, the public employee unions have really leaned into opposing it. And so we're yes. trying to find um, a way to do this that doesn't hurt. Uh, working people and organized labor in particular, the subject of how to pay for uh, something uh, that's so ambitious uh, up front uh, over time. It's my belief and many people's beliefs that um, this will actually be a cost saver over time, but there's a tremendous upfront cost that needs to be uh, figured out. And so the, there's a series of issues like that that need to be parsed through. Um, I know because I've spoken to her directly and been in meetings with her and Senator Rivera, whose bill it is that um, there's a real dedication to digging into this in the next several months and hopefully we'll make some progress. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you had some of your legislation recently signed by the governor. I, I, I wasn't paying exact attention to the clock on this, but I was a little surprised that he gave you the the satisfaction of signing your um, your housing bill uh, before he left, uh, known as Honda, Housing Our Neighbors with Dignity Act. Um, can you say a little bit about the path forward on that and what you're what you're hoping for there? Yeah, it was an important step, uh, but only a first step. And what we've seen with with rent relief and with excluded workers and with the HERO Act and so many things is that implementation is just as important as passing the law. Uh, So we we now have a law in New York that commits uh, $100 million as starter money. We're hoping it could grow to more than $2 billion with access to some federal funds to purchase um, distressed properties uh, in, in the state, commercial properties, hotels that um, have been suffering over the last two years due to um, the pandemic and the effects, its effects on the economy, um, and then turn that into truly permanent, affordable housing, uh, in some cases with supportive services uh, included, uh, to to make a real dent um, in both our homelessness problem um, and our uh, affordable housing crisis in general. Um, the hope is that if this gets off the ground and is successful, it can become a model that grows and tackles this problem once and for all, because it has been a really difficult one uh, to take on um, over the last several decades. And so the hope there, generally speaking, is that some of these distressed uh, properties can be fairly quickly turned into affordable housing? Yeah, exactly. Now, I think hotels jump to mind as the most likely because they already are units that include bathrooms and are more easily convertible um, into residences. Uh, But the law would also apply to commercial properties, which um, may cost more to convert and take longer. Um, But yes, that's the idea is take some of these properties there. They exist. They're sitting unused for the most part right now. um, And let's put them to use uh, to create something that there's great need for. It's a real win-win, which is you take a property that's uh, having trouble uh, succeeding economically and turn it into something we desperately need, which is affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And is, um, are you, are you having discussions about going back into session anytime soon related to the eviction moratorium and the Supreme court's uh, ruling um, anything, anything planned there? 
Uh, we stand ready to to do whatever is necessary. Uh, I know the incoming governor, Kathy Hochul, made some comments um, right after that Supreme Court decision that um, she wanted to address this. We agree something needs to happen desperately here. Um, the current moratorium, which has now been kind of chopped up by the Supreme Court, uh, goes away entirely at the end of the month. Um, and so there's not a lot of time to play with here. But uh, as always, the Senate stands ready to go and do at work if we have willing partners. So... What's your sense of whether that's going to happen this month? I, I don't know, but I hope so because we need it. And and would that look like um, alterations to the moratorium as well as the uh, ERAP, the, the, the funding mechanism, or is the funding issue uh, really just about implementation by this, the you know the executive branch? The funding issue seems to be an administrative problem. If there's something we need to do legislatively, I think we'd be ready to do that. But um, on the moratorium, I think it would be, um, first of all, an extension of what we had in place. But then also we would need to reconstruct the way tenants can certify that they are um, they suffered a loss of income that would allow them to access the funding. Um, so because that's what the... Uh, the uh, Supreme Court kind of went at, I mean, access the moratorium because that's what the Supreme Court uh, went at uh, particularly. So uh, our lawyers think there's ways to solve it. Um, and so we're ready to go and do what's necessary. But again, we just we can't do it by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Let me just come back to Honda for one quick second. Best case scenario, when you were drafting this legislation, what and now that it's signed, what's what's the timeline on seeing sort of any first properties converted and and people living in them as affordable housing. Do you have any sense of that? Well, like, like so much of what we talked about, the passage of the law is one thing that we can control as a legislature. The implementation is something the executive controls. And so it's certainly something um, at the top of my list to talk to um, the incoming governor uh, about once she ascends on Tuesday. Um but it's up to the state agencies now to set up um, uh, a system to go use the funding that's available to, to start purchasing properties. Okay. All right. We're in our last couple minutes here with State Senator Michael Janaris, uh, Deputy Leader of the State Senate. Appreciate appreciate the time. We're talking here on Friday, August 20th. Uh, so by the time you hear this, as, as fast moving as things have been, there, there could be a couple of things that we've seen updates on from the new governor, Kathy Hochul, or or from the state legislature, but um, uh, in our last couple minutes here, um, Senator Janaris, uh, a couple other things I wanted to ask you. One is, um, obviously, there's a lot of speculation about Attorney General Letitia James now running for governor next year. Are you preparing to possibly run for Attorney General if she runs for governor? Well, that's a multi-step question. Um, I I, I want to defer until... uh, until Tish James gets to say what her future holds for next year. Uh, She's been a great attorney general, um, but she's sitting in that seat and I certainly would not be running against her. And so I'm I'm going to withhold on saying anything about that until we have more clarity on, on the political layer of the land. Mm -hmm. Do you hope she runs for governor? Uh, I do. I think she has a lot to offer. um, And I think she has done a terrific job. I've known her, for many years, uh, long before she was even attorney general. And um, I think her, um, her candidacy would be historic. Mm-hmm. And so that sounds like a little bit of a, of a suggestion that you're not necessarily that excited about Kathy Hochul as governor. 
Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Um, I think the the bigger question for um, Kathy Hochul, in my mind, is just how she's going to position herself and how she's going to deal with some of these issues that we talked about. And um, I don't think we have answers to that question yet. For example, we've got you know a, a week and a half before the eviction moratorium runs out, as you pointed out. Are we going to go back and do something about that or not? Like these are um, the questions that uh, you know her. Um, her answers on will um, will help determine how people view her politically. But you did already say you hope just James runs for governor. Well, I don't think we ever suffer from a robust debate and conversation mm-hmm. uh, in our in our uh, democratic process. And what do you make of the possibility of Bill de Blasio running for governor? Again, this is uh, some people view this as an open seat. I'm sure Gaddy Oakle does not view it that way, mm-hmm. but um, but this is a democracy. People can put their names forward and, and let the voters decide. So I would not begrudge anyone that opportunity. Okay. And um, this seems like ancient history now because of um, what's happened with the governor, but the mayoral race was not that long ago. You supported Maya Wiley, um, you know, for a first time candidate. Uh, you know, she did she did pretty well compared to some other people in the field, got the second most first ranked votes, came in third in the ranked choice tally, but obviously didn't win. Um, why do you think her candidacy is, you know, basically the, the top sort of left progressive standing in the race? Um, why do you think it wasn't more successful? Well, you could peel that um, election apart 17 different ways. Uh, I do think there was um, a lack of consolidation uh, on the left, which kind of hampered the momentum uh, that could have been achieved in the end. Uh, everyone settled on Maya, but that was only in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Scott Stringer was certainly uh, um, getting a lot of that support. Dan Morales was for some amount of time. Um, and so that um, competition for the base um that base vote um, hindered, I think, her effort to, to gain momentum and then move forward more aggressively. Um, but, you know, Eric Adams ran a good race. Uh, he's the nominee, and hopefully um, he'll do a good job as mayor. Mm-hmm. All right, last two. Um, the, uh, when, I, when I said on, on Twitter I was interviewing and asked for suggestions, one of the biggest ones was to ask you about uh, the N train extension and the air train to LaGuardia and where you stand on these issues. Uh, so where are you at on that now? It's a good question. So if you have a, um, if you have a good staff, they've, they've mentioned this to you. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not an issue I haven't thought about for yeah. a long time. So yeah. this goes back all the way to the nineties since before yeah. I was even in office and there have been a number of proposals and uh, what I have been um, loath to support are, are, options that run the elevated train to the N train is runs elevated through Queens and terminates at Demars Boulevard. And there's been a suggestion to continue that past um, where the train currently ends to LaGuardia airport. One suggestion has been to turn it right up Dittmar's Boulevard, which is a very main thoroughfare. And the other is to continue on 31st street and then turn uh, eastward uh, farther down. Uh, so I have been loath to support these plans that would run an elevated station right through the middle of vibrant residential and commercial streets. I don't think the people who live on those streets uh, would appreciate that. Um, and, and it's something we have to look at holistically. For example, we have a very successful open streets program right now, right on Dittmar's Boulevard. And so um, you'd be kind of killing that by running an elevated train right up the middle of it. Um, I am open to supporting um, uh, subway extension to the airport. I think if we could talk about 
turning it or spurring it off of the Astoria Boulevard stop instead of the Ditmar stop. And then you have the opportunity to run the train uh, right along the Grand Central Parkway to LaGuardia. And that would have less of an impact on um, on uh, the neighborhood, uh, similar to the way the air train uh, JFK runs along the Van Wick. Um, here you could run it along Grand Central. There's been uh, suggestions of running it uh, along the BQE. But if we come up with a plan that um, allows the subway to kind of spur off and run alongside um, highways, I think that would be less disruptive um, and still accomplish the same goals. And but your current position on the the air train proposal is what? Oh, the one that is pending. Yes, um, I I could see why people don't have. It's not the best. Um, I could see why people are opposed to it. it does require um, uh, people to run past Laguardia to come back to it. Um, I had historically been in support of something like that, as opposed to destroying Ditmar's Boulevard with an elevated train structure. But I think there could be a better way than either of those, as I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. All right. Lastly, um, you oppose the Amazon tax breaks, but you seem supportive of the state's film tax credit that has been shown to, you know, have real questionable effectiveness and uh, and, uh, you know, validity. Um, is that a is that a conflict? And, and how do you sort of square that? It is absolutely not a conflict. They are very different programs. One was a straight up giveaway to an individual company um, that was shaking down the entire nation um, and was a company that was coming to New York and continues to come to New York anyway. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the three billion and you know, most of it was in incentives, not in grants, even though there was a substantial amount that were in grants. Um, and when people like me say, well, we just saved you $3 billion, you know, there's some attempt to ridicule that. But that is, in fact, the truth if Amazon's going to bring those jobs anyway. And in fact, they have already brought more white collar jobs to New York City than they were promising to bring under HQ2. So if at the end of the day, if you fast forward 20 years or whatever their timeline was, and you have those 25,000 jobs in New York City, and you have the associated revenue that's being generated from those jobs, and you are not giving billions of dollars in incentives to do that, we have in fact not just saved those billions of dollars for New York taxpayers. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen. As for the film credit, that is an industry-wide benefit. Benefit that is for a very transient industry. Productions from one to the next can decide where they want to film. Um, so it's not like you know a, a company like Amazon that's going to come here and drop office jobs and have an office building that they are under a long-term lease to occupy uh, or even own the building uh, are committed to a location. The film industry comes and goes as it pleases. We've seen that. The credit was created uh, almost 20 years ago now because we had no film business in New York because it was going to Toronto. It was going to uh, other parts of, um, of the United States. And by reestablishing this, we now have an incredibly robust uh, and successful film industry. And anyone that thinks that they won't just go away tomorrow without the credits is fooling themselves. Mm-hmm. All right. Not going to, not going to debate any of that with you. I've already kept you longer than I, I said I would. So we'll have to get into uh, things related to the MTA and redistricting and some other things that I didn't get to, if you can, if you can believe it uh, another time, but um, Senator Michael Gennaris, I really uh, appreciate the time and, and your thoughts on these various issues. And uh, we'll talk more soon. Thanks, Ben. I look forward to, to being back again. All right. Thank you. Thank you.